What does technology have to do with gender? Today, I'm speaking with Jason Kuznicki. Welcome to the Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Sabine Alchidiak, and today I'm speaking with Jason Kuznicki. Jason is the editor-in-chief at Tech Freedom and was previously a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and the editor of Cato Books and Cato Unbound. He has an article featured in an issue of Cosmos and Taxes entitled Gender as Essence and as Economic Choice, which we'll be talking about today. You can also check out two other podcasts we've recorded on articles from that issue, featuring the editor of the issue, Lauren Hall, and a discussion with authors Akiva Malame and Michaela Novak. So Jason, what does technology have to do with gender? Technology has a lot to do with gender. Technology shapes the choices that we make in every part of life. And my paper asks readers to consider that gender is one of those fields where technology really does matter. And the way that it matters is by presenting us choices. It gives us options for what we may or, or, or may not want to do in the future. And then from that menu of choices, each individual makes a selection. That's how economics works. And so what I ask people to do is to at least consider applying some of the tools of economics to choices in the field of gender. And you start your article off by outlining the various claims, both more moderate and more extreme, that because transition is imperfect, it's illegitimate. Can you walk us through those claims and why some people make them? Sure. <clears throat> One gender critical perspective is that gender has an essence to it. Every one of us is really deep down inside either male or female. And the important thing to do is to figure that out and then conform to it. And if you do that, you are performing your gender well. And if you don't do that, you're performing it badly. We find the essence then evaluate how well you're living up to the commands of it. And what I would suggest is that this is a setup that actually doesn't describe human behavior all that well. Uh, and it also doesn't describe human bodies all that well. We look in vain for scientific evidence of a gender essence. And while certain traits may be very common, none of them are universal to all people who are generally recognized as men or as women. And you do agree that transition technology is not perfect right now, uh, but you disagree that the natural conclusion is that people should simply not transition at all. Um, can you talk about the alternative conclusion that you'd propose? I would suggest that we leave people alone. If libertarians and classical liberals really believe that individuals own and are the rightful moral stewards of their own bodies, then this is not a really difficult question to answer. It isn't my body. I don't have to live with the consequences. I don't have to uh, decide whether I'm happy or, or unhappy about it. And I, I think that this is, in fact, a, a, a very uh, clear-cut case of allowing people to exercise bodily autonomy, having good consequences. 
we find that when individuals have gone through with gender affirming surgery, surgery to to make their body match the way that they understand themselves uh, on the inside, emotionally, uh, psychologically, uh, mentally, then uh, people are very happy. Satisfaction rates with surgery are very high. And uh, so if, uh, if there are regrets, I, I understand that that's, that's unfortunate, but it really has been oversold in the popular media. A, a recent study of post-operative individuals found that 99.7% of trans people who had undergone surgery were satisfied. And that's a level of satisfaction that compares very favorably to surgeries that don't make the news. They're not something that people are screaming about banning. They are not uh, the objects of moral panic. This is a set of procedures that people generally find helps them to live the way that they want to live. And uh, I can't for the life of me see why there's an objection to that on on uh, liberal or libertarian grounds. That makes sense. And <clears throat> it seems that in other situations, technological barriers have been looked at as something to overcome through innovation. Um, it's sort of the, the go-to thing we say, like, oh, this is, a, like, we found a niche thing that we can make better. That's great. Let's let's try and make it better. But um, it doesn't seem that way when it comes to uh, gender technology. Um, usually it goes with a rather that it's just a reason to stop doing something. That's what people might argue. Like, it's not perfect. It's not going to help that well that much, obviously. So just don't do it. Um, what do you think about that? Like, why is it that in other situations it's obvious that we should be looking at something to overcome through innovation, um, but not in this situation oftentimes? I think it's because a lot of people are indeed gender essentialists. They believe in a, a model of gender where there are only two real types of humans, and it's male and female, and you have to act like one of them or we're going to be angry at you. But I would ask... Why is that set up in place at all? Again, we are talking about the individuals who are the owners of their own bodies, the individuals who are in charge of taking care of that particular human. Now, mm -hmm. a lot of people will say, what about children? And that's a question that really ought to be answered. First of all, when a child is under the care of a doctor, and when the child's parent also consents, medical interventions can happen in other contexts. When we are talking about someone who is in high school, someone who is a teenager, this is someone whom our society gives some degree of autonomy about their body. And when a decision has been reached to the satisfaction of a doctor and the young person involved and their parents to, for example, take uh, puberty-blocking drugs. That's, that's a decision that I don't see why I, as an outside person who just follows the news and current events, gets to have a say 
on. You know, that's not something that I think uh, I should seem like I have any particular insight on. There's a doctor, there's a patient, there is the patient's legal guardian, and those are the people who are probably best situated to say anything at all about the case. Why am I watching something on TV about it and getting mad? Should I really be doing that? I'd suggest no, that's not something I should be doing. And that's not something others should be doing either. And uh, we've touched a little bit on some uh, claims that have been made, both uh, transition technology, but also essentialism um, or essentialist arguments. And the argument might simply be made not for simply technological reasons, but points in the direction of the argument that what is natural should not be changed. Um, And you see lots of cracks in that argument. Um, And you show that through two really interesting examples that I want to touch on uh, right now. First is the culture. Can you describe the sci-fi series uh, before I start asking you questions about it? Because I found it very interesting and I might look it up. (laughs) The culture is a setting for the science fiction novels of Ian M. Banks, who uh, was a writer who imagined a very far future civilization, which he just called the culture, that was much, much, much more technologically advanced than we are. More technologically advanced even than Star Trek in some ways. They have, they have capabilities that are much beyond our own. And one of them is that gender transition only takes a short amount of time and it's fully functional. So if I wanted to, I could become a woman and get pregnant, which is something we can't do right now. And that is something that a lot of gender essentialists will point to and say, hey, look, you can't get pregnant if you transition, or you cannot impregnate if you transition. And to that, I would say, yes, that's correct. However, we're getting better at doing things with biology. Maybe one day that will happen. And then you're going to have a difficult question to answer because it is the case already right now. There are lots of women who cannot get pregnant. There are lots of men who cannot impregnate. That is not the essence of gender. That is one thing that often accompanies gender, but not always. And when, when we consider this as a set of capacities that some people have and some people don't, and we notice that it doesn't line up with gender, it does not seem to me that we have some great obligation to make it line up. If one individual wants to have the ability to get pregnant and doesn't have it, they can go to a doctor and there's help for that now. And one day that help may even extend to someone like me who wants to get pregnant. That is someone who was assigned male at birth, happy with it, not transitioning, But maybe one day, if that were easy, if the costs in money and time and all the rest were really, really low, and if changing back were easy, and if I were younger, well, why not? Why wouldn't I want to do that? Uh, That's something that I, with my partner, might actually want to. And so there are trade-offs here. There are trade-offs that we all make about gender. A transition for me is just not in the cards right now. I'm I'm very comfortable with being a man, but I can imagine some scenarios where if technology were very different, even I would want to transition. And I can also see that other people's preference sets might 
be somewhere in between, somewhere in between mine and the people who are transitioning today. And they're saying, well, you know, I, I don't feel completely comfortable as a man and I want to explore this. However, I'm a little bit concerned and I, you know, for me at least the costs are too high. There's a continuum here. And an economist might even say that this looks an awful lot like a demand curve. And thinking about a, cult, uh, a concept like the culture uh, helps us kind of reflect, I think, on our own society. And, you know, as, as biomedical technology advances in the real world, how is it going to potentially affect society, in your opinion? A lot of people try to imagine the future of gender and they extrapolate from present day trends. Present day trends have emphasized until now the legal equality of the sexes and the workplace equality of the sexes and how can we uh, treat both with an equal worth and dignity. And an extrapolation from that might lead some people to think, hey, you know, the future is not going to have gender at all. We're going to all wear gray coveralls and shave our heads and just hide every physical attribute about our bodies. And uh, something is going to be lost if we get rid of gender. And this has been something that uh, people like Andrew Sullivan have often brought up as an objection to, uh, to people gender transitioning that maybe this is something that a few people have to do, but we ought not to make any changes to our society on that basis. And I would simply ask in response, does anyone really want that future? I don't think anyone really wants that future. I want a future of legal and social equality, but difference in expression. And I think that's attainable. I want a future where you may express yourself in the realm of gender however you want, and it doesn't have any necessary uh, legal or social impediments that go along with it. Yeah. And I don't think that'll be the end of men or women for the simple reason that we all like being men or women for the most part. The vast majority of people do. And those who don't, in, in my preferred set of social arrangements, they would be okay too. They'd be, they'd be welcome because there's no necessary stigma there. There's nothing that we have to do to them. Uh, something I just thought about while you were speaking is it's interesting that some of these uh, claims would make, just say like, having more choice or more freedom is going to end up in a future society where we have limited choice and limited freedom, uh, doesn't really follow. You know? <laughs> so it's it a, seems really strange. Yes. <laughs> when you put it that way, that's an excellent way to put it. Why is it that having more choice is going to lead to more uniformity? I don't think that that has any clear causal trajectory to it. I mean, it doesn't really follow in other examples in, in everyday life, too. So um, I think that's something we can think about more. And another um, example you use to, 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 to display what you're talking about is organic chemistry. I thought this was a really interesting one. Um, <clears throat> can you now turn towards organic chemistry and tell us about the supposed life force that separated organic from inorganic materials? Which sounds cool because I feel like we're about to discuss a Star Trek episode. <laughs> 
sort of, yeah. You know, Star Trek is <laughs> Star Trek is great because sometimes they fall into the exact the exact uh, the exact mistake that I complain of. Uh, there's a very widespread belief in the history of science that life is special, that life was created separately from the physical world, perhaps by God, and that there's some sort of mysterious barrier between the stuff of life and the stuff that is inert. And I think this is something that really does come out of Christianity because other religious traditions don't seem to have it and some even deny it. But uh, the, the idea is called vitalism. And if you go online and look for it, you'll, you'll find it. Vitalism is the idea that there is this special thing, this special uh, chemical quality or chemical property that life has to make organic molecules. Uh, in the early days of quantitative chemistry, organic molecules didn't seem like they could come from anywhere except life. There was this class of, of chemicals that only life had and other other places, other sources, you couldn't make life, you know, the life molecules. And uh, then urea was synthesized. This is a very common uh, organic molecule, the first one to be synthesized. And uh, people had to ask a difficult question. Is there really some sort of vital essence that either goes into or makes organic compounds? And Eventually, the answer came back no, but it took a really long time, and there was a pretty firm belief for uh, a lot of the 18th and into the 19th century that there had to be some kind of a division, that life had to be special. More and more and more chemists found the opposite, and they had to rethink their categories. And so now we can certainly study the chemistry of life, and we should, and that's great, but we don't study it as something that is necessarily and and uh, categorically distinct from the rest of chemistry because it's not. So conceptual barriers can break down, and that's that's what I think may happen with a lot of our understanding of the gender binary too. And uh, how does technology affect the ideas of those who believe an essential part of being a woman or a man? includes physical attributes. It gradually takes away every leg that they have to stand on. That's what I see happening. That's partly a prediction because some things about gender cannot be had yet. But I think it's a pretty reasonable prediction to make based on what I've seen so far and based on the fact that we're really discovering a lot of very exciting things in the life sciences right now. We are learning how to engineer proteins and genes and even organs. And these are developments that are going to call into question a lot of the uh, essentialist ideas about what humans can and can't actually do with their bodies. And we've talked about it a little bit already, but, um, you know, people that think the technology affects or <clears throat> technology affects the ideas of those who believe there is more of an essence based argument. So those who believe that it's like when they when they're 
when technology is concerned, it's going to start to break down that argument. And there's a quote that made an impression on me in your paper. I'm going to quote you here. Essence becomes just a fancy name for our vague impressions about the things we don't know how to do yet. Um, can you elaborate on this? As long as, as long as uh, it's an unattainable choice, we can think about it as like a part of metaphysics. We can think about it as something that maybe came from God. We can think about it as something inherent in the nature of the universe. But uh, the fact is that uh, geneticists already don't think this about the sexual uh, difference. Sex to an evolutionary biologist is a clever trick that allows good genes to propagate and mix freely throughout a population. That's what sex is. It's not a universal property of things ordained by God. It is a clever trick that evolution has found to ensure that genes are dispersed when they are an evolutionary advantage. That's what sex is. Gender is all of the baggage that we bring to that. And all of the different practices and all of the different norms and all of the, the values that we attach to it. And why do we do all of that? Why do we have gender attached to sex? Well, honestly, my belief about this is we are looking to have sex. We are biologically hardwired to seek out mates. And gender is a way to look for and to advertise for mates. And that's why it's not going away, because that's really, really deeply encoded in who we are. Um, what about the people who believe the essence lies within the whole? Like We've been talking about um, certain things that people believe make you a man or a woman, um, but some people think it's not in one thing, but a combination of things that make someone a man or a woman. I'd say yes, that is, that is probably what it is. Uh, we identify men and women because we're looking for mates, and we identify them based on a grab bag of different things that we've observed, not based on I've apprehended the universal essence of this person, and it is. We, we are looking, we are forming an overall impression, and that is what we rely on. We are not divining a universal truth. We are inferring in a, an inductive way about what this person is like. And as gender technology continues to deliver better interventions, you think these arguments are going to start being harder and harder to make? I hope so. I hope so. But uh, really what I hope for in, in future improvements to gender technology is that uh, people will live more happily in their own bodies. That uh, when these kinds of interventions are uh, easy to do and very effective, they can be things that, uh, that make life better for everyone. And I, I should say this is absolutely for everyone because advances in transgender medical care are also frequently, frequently advances in cisgender medical care. That uh, gender affirming care is in fact for everyone.
Um, and, you know, it's it's interesting that you, you made that point because uh, gender technology is not the only thing that's evolving. So is gender expression. Uh, you mentioned that in your article as well. Can you talk about that evolution? It used to be that if you were a man, you were a flamboyant dresser for wearing a red tie. Back in the late 19th and early 20th century, someone who wore a red silk tie was being flamboyant. This was the type of thing Oscar Wilde might do. Nowadays, we have an image of Oscar Wilde as you know, fantastically uh, dressed, but he was really kind of stayed by uh, present-day standards. He was, uh, he was a bit of a fop, maybe, by Victorian standards, but that's very different. <laughs> Gender's changing all the time. If I were to present myself at the court of Louis XIV, uh, I wouldn't pass for either a man or a woman. I look like maybe some sort of a freshly shaven peasant man who was wearing some weird, unrecognizable clothes. Uh, but the height of manliness in that time period was the king himself, who wore uh, lace and silk and makeup and high heels and a long curly wig. And uh, he seems really effeminate to us. This is always changing all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of these are technological developments. There's a long, complicated history about fabric technology that we're not going to get into here. But uh, you know, that's just one of them. There are many, many, many developments that uh, inform how we show our gender that come from technologies, and not just clothing. Uh, our, our bodies, too. They are also included. Um, an essentialist theory might even lead to some more dangerous ideas of biopower. Um, can you explain what biopower is and why you turned to Iran to explain this further in your paper? Biopower is an idea from the French philosopher Michel Foucault. And what he, what he argued was that uh, what we believe that we know about scientific topics is often a set of propositions that comes to us conditioned both on science but also on political power. If a development is really useful or if an idea is really useful for political power, then surprise, surprise, it bubbles to the top. And if an idea is not useful to political power, it may struggle to get widely implemented or, or even widely taught. And uh, gender is no different. It is politically useful to treat gender as a fit topic for politics, uh, as everybody knows. And mm -hmm. this has consequences in individual people's lives. In the United States recently, we've seen quite a few bills at the state level aimed at making uh, it more difficult to transition, making it more difficult to find information about being gender nonconforming, making it... Uh, just more complicated and more dangerous to be out in public as a transgender person. Mm -hmm. And that's an example of biopower. When it's hard for you to find 
a restroom where you can go and do your business, it's hard for you to go out of the house then. It is hard for you to live a public life. This is a real problem, and it is an example of biopower. In Iran, things have, have played out kind of differently. In Iran, at least as it's widely been reported and it's, it's a bit hard to tell, uh, homosexuality is illegal. And it is seemingly the case that people who are gay are pressured into or forced into gender transitions that they don't want. And that's also an example of biopower. That's an example of what I would say is an individual not conforming to their gender essence in one way. They're uh, not having the, uh, the sexual orientation that is said to be the right one for cisgender people. And because of that nonconformity, they are pressured into or, or perhaps forced into a choice that they really don't want. So we're getting to the point now where uh, we have to take a break. And after the break, let's talk about some alternatives to the ways we discuss the phenomena of gender. The Curious Task is a podcast by the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. Special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Amy Willis, Chris Rondolo, and Christopher McDonald. Remember to follow us and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everyone. I'm speaking with Jason Kuznicki. Um, I want to turn to some alternatives to the way gender is discussed now after the break. And let's turn first to xenofeminism, which is an idea in response to the failure of essentialism to be anything more than simply trying to prove your gut feelings, <laughs> as you put it. Um, in your article, you quote Laboria Cubonics, and uh, this is the quote. The manifesto uh, also calls for an explicit organized effort to repurpose technologies for progressive gender ends. This effort would be an arduous assertion of freedom against an order that seemed immutable. You say we've done this before. Can you elaborate on that? We've taken groups of people whom we can't even imagine as part of the polity, and we figured out how to make them part of the polity. When you look at 17th century political theory, one of the big problems that people like Filmer and Locke and Bossuet are talking about are, is just how do we deal with atheists? We can't make them into good citizens, can we? Because you can never trust anything an atheist says. And yet, we did eventually. There mm -hmm. were similar debates about Jews. Can Jews be citizens? The answer is yes, they can be. And uh, this, is, this is, I would say, an assertion of freedom against an order that seemed immutable. When you read Locke talking about atheists, he's, he's pretty freaked out about this because he views the entire political order as resting on a set of oaths. And no oath from any atheist is ever, ever, ever acceptable to him. So, you know, that for him was a dilemma. However, however, 
uh, we don't have to have that kind of a dilemma here because really what we have are technological problems and technological solutions, one after another. Uh, the Xenofeminist Manifesto describes itself as vehemently anti-naturalist. And there is some commonality there between uh, a, a sort of a nature-critical project and the project of science itself. We are trying to take from mere nature the power to have better life for all of us, to have a better life for all of us. Uh, it, is, it is a Promethean effort. It is an effort to overcome natural limitations that we understand to be constraining. Uh, we aren't able to fly, we build airplanes. We suffer from diseases, we invent vaccination. And on and on and on. Being able to exert power over the gender attributes of our own body is a part of that same project. It's a part of building a world in which we can be free to be the people that we believe we can be, the people that we know ourselves to have the potential to be. That's not something I want to stand in the way of for anyone. Um, you know, based on what you just said, it seems like it is hard for people to accept that technologically supplied gender traits are real gender traits when that's acceptable in other areas of life. It does seem arbitrary to me. It does. Um, some people believe that accepting all of this would lead to the abolition of binary gender and the traits that come along with that. You you mentioned a little bit about that before, and I want to get into it a little more now. Uh, but those who advocate gender abolition don't actually want that, you say in your article. What is it that they imagine could happen instead? Well, strictly binary gender has almost never happened. There are accounts of people who either want to transition or who live as a gender not assigned at birth in many, many different cultures. This is not a new desire. This is not a new practice. This is an old desire. This is an old practice. And we're just doing it better now. We are doing it more thoroughly and more completely and with more capacities. Uh, I don't think that we're going to... Uh, abolish distinctions or differences, but I do think that we might abolish the social stigmas that often accompany them. And I also think that we ought to abolish the social stigmas that come from gender transition. This is someone who has found living with the gender that they were assigned to be intolerable. This is someone who can't see themselves in their own body anymore. And as much as you might want one type of response to that and only one type, and it's got to be, hey, get used to your own body and don't ever change it. Well, I've got to tell you, that doesn't really work out for the people who are having that experience. They don't want that. They want something very different. 
and we're getting better and better all the time at supplying it. Uh, and you touched on this a little before, but in fact, you say there's very little prospect that masculinity and femininity will ever disappear. Uh, and I, I feel like this is an argument that's made a lot. <laughs> like, one day, we won't even have those two things. <laughs> it, it is. But you're saying it that's not possible. Really con- <laughs> well, they are, they are perceived by us as, as poles on a spectrum. And if you look at it carefully, if you look at it empirically, it's a cluster of traits that tends to be common on one side and a cluster of traits that tends to be common on the other. But people who are sitting on one side of that bimodal distribution, they're not necessarily going to have every single trait. I've got just about all of the traits that you might expect someone to have who was assigned male at birth. I lack one of them. I am completely not attracted to women. Not whatsoever. Does that make me transgender? No. Does that make me a less than uh, normatively ideal traditional man? Well, yeah. And uh, we're all a bit like that, I think. Nobody is a perfectly gender-conforming individual, or almost nobody. Uh, We may all have a a hobby or uh, an entertainment franchise or uh or even just a food that's identified with the other gender and like oh that's a really feminine thing or that's you know you like you like to have a gigantic steak wow that's like a man uh you know <laughs> but uh but what i would say here is like you know we can let all that slide if we want we don't have to police other people's behavior we could just not do that we could. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> the, the abolition that I want is that everyone faces less of that. Not that no one is masculine and no one is feminine. Please continue to do that if that makes you happy. Uh, so moving our focus to uh, classical liberalism, um, you talk about gender technology as part of a market, um, that as the costs of gender transition decline, the reasons for transition will multiply. Uh, what do you think that means for society? In uh, Ian M. Banks's culture books, it meant that some people would gender transition and have children and then go back. That's one example that I, I use in the paper. Another one that's not found in those books that uh, I think is, is maybe a bit intentionally provocative is to imagine an actor who really wants to play the role of Lady Macbeth, but he's a man. Now, if gender transition only takes a few weeks and it's low cost and it's not difficult anymore, that's not a crazy thing to do to prepare for the run of a show. If it's really, if it's really easy. Now, it's not that way today, but in a hypothetical future world, it's hard to find fault with that choice. By, by any coherent set of values, it's hard to find fault with that choice. If the actor is willing, if the audience has no objection to it and they're willing paid customers, I see no problem here. Uh, We might say that's a frivolous reason to gender transition. We might say that it's uh, uh, almost in a way disrespectful to people who are transitioning out of of deep uh, profound values or profound self-conceptions. And, and I'd agree. I'd, I'd agree. That's, that's what looks to us like a frivolous reason. 
But in a world where the technology has greatly improved, it's not a frivolous reason anymore. Uh, I could compare this to uh, the price of light, which is an example that I, I think your listeners have probably heard of in the past. Uh, it used to be that light was really expensive. Candles cost a lot of money. If you have uh, a bunch of them lit up in the night, you're probably rich. Nowadays, uh, light is very, very cheap to produce. And so we think very little of turning on a light in the darkness. We flip a switch and don't even think about the cost. And uh, this is, again, this is an example of the quantity demanded changing when the price changes. Uh, why do you think this conversation about gender and technology is important for those who consider themselves classical liberals? I think we've um, identified a few uh, reasons uh, pretty obviously throughout our conversation, but um, why is it particularly important for classical liberals, do you think? It points to a tension in the way that a lot of us think. A lot of us are simultaneously in favor of markets, but also perhaps gender essentialists. And the question I, I want to pose to people like this is, at what point does the logic of economic choice start to eat at the theory that there is an essence to gender? At what point does it really start to call into question that, that normative framework? Because when someone is an essentialist, they're not just saying, I know what the one true thing is that reveals gender. They're also saying, and you need to conform. Uh, it's, it's uh, in a way, uh, a similar project to uh, what uh, Gary Becker did with racial discrimination. That uh, there, are, there may be people who believe in free market institutions, but also privately they want to discriminate. And the question Becker asked was, can we model and maybe even quantify the cost of that? Can we understand the costs that racists play for, you know, the costs that racists pay for their beliefs? And the answer is yes, we can do that. Here I'm asking a similar question. There are costs to all of this. There are costs to all of this, but they are falling. And we're learning how to do new things. And I think in 100 years, if we were having a similar conversation, we'd be at a very different price point for a lot of things. And we'd have to ask then, where does this idea of essence still stand? It doesn't seem like it stands all that well to me right now, but it does to a lot of people. Yeah, well, I still kind of see it. Tell me then what will happen when the ability to distinguish between a cis and a trans woman or a cis and a trans man is still harder. Tell me what happens when more people transition. Tell me what happens when... Uh, all of the capacities that you might have from being a cis person can be duplicated. I would say, hey, look, I don't have this problem because I'm not an essentialist. I think these are, these are two different styles of people, if you will. And uh, 
Nowadays, we see it as absolutely a question of style, what type of clothing you wear. One day, though, we might see that similarly with our bodies. It, you know, as you were speaking there, I was also thinking about it, it doesn't really make sense to be a classical liberal and a gender essentialist because it really hurts this concept of like sort of the knowledge problem, like the Hayekin knowledge problem. Like how, how are we supposed to know <laughs> what works and what doesn't work for any anyone else when like it's sort of like we're we're saying if you can't get it right, the technology if you can't get the technology right, then you shouldn't do it at all. That's where we started our conversation. Um, it seems like a pretty harsh criticism when you're somebody who usually says uh, we can innovate, we can be entrepreneurs, we can figure this out. Um, we can let people live the way they want. Um, and then turn around and be a gender essentialist. It seems like a very hard thing to uh, be able to to make sense to me. <laughs> in a I, sense. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. Why are we not essentialists about our immune system? Only your natural mm. immune system is the one that you have to rely on. You should never get any kind of vaccination. Uh, that that seems nuts. I hope to to your listeners, and uh, the same I think is also at work with gender. We don't need this hypothesis that there is an essence. What we need is autonomy and choice. So, um, Jason, we've talked about a lot. Uh, let's try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you, what do you hope are the main takeaways, either one or two or as many as you like, for someone listening to you here on what technology has to do with gender? I think the main takeaway is that we really need a heavy dose of humility here. The idea that gender is easy to understand and intuitive may seem true, but the longer you look at gender and the experiences that other people are having with it, the less seems easy and intuitive. This is hard to figure out. This is complicated. And a simple, common sense, everybody knows kind of explanation is more often than not going to mislead or exclude. A really common answer to that is, well, it's basically a binary. It's more or less a binary. You know, everybody but a tiny number of people is included. And my response to that would be, the smallest minority is a minority of one. And that applies to gender just like to anything else. Uh, there's, a, there's a popular meme that uh, talks about this. The universe is basically just hydrogen and helium. Everything else is a tiny little sliver that we can disregard, right? That's not important. It's not essential. And I'd say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm made out of more than hydrogen and helium. In fact, I've got no helium at all in me and only a bit of hydrogen. I'm mostly carbon and oxygen and nitrogen. And, <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's what a too simple model can miss. It can miss things that are really important. And that's why I'm asking for a bit of humility and let's back off on these laws that issue commands based on ideas of gender essence. Jason, this was such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much for being here with us on The Curious Task today. Thank you. 
The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode is produced by Sabine Alchidiak and Eric Sagan. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Vopenford. You should check out his music online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Sabine Alchidiak. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Bye, bye, bye.